What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. All right, Jacob, what have you been doing recently? Um, I've been working on a, a, a tedious project. I'm still in the middle of my house move. Like we're, We've been living here for a few months now, but... Uh, not even close to being a house yet in terms of everything being <laughs> where it needs to be. Uh, like, like I have lot, lots of books and closets because I'm trying to save money to have like built-in bookshelves and have my office turned into a library space. But I did have enough things roughly sorted that I did a, a project that I've wanted to do for a long time, which is sort my Star Trek books, Ben. Um, mm. I have a very bad habit. Whenever I'm in a used bookstore, I go to the clearance section where I buy whatever Star Trek novels they have for like a dollar each, and I just put them in a big box, and I never look at them <laughs> because I was basically as <laughs> I didn't until now. And I thought I'm gonna go through them, you know, see, um, you know, sort what I have, see if, see if I have any doubles. And it turns out that uh, ten years of buying dollar Star Trek novels means you get lots of doubles, lots of triples, lots of quadruples, even one quintuple, um, <laughs> a quintuple of uh decades old star trek books uh so that's that was my weekend project was going through that and at one point i had so many star trek books surrounding me i said man i wonder how close i am to like having all the star trek books and the answer is uh i there are about 850 published star trek books i have about 100 so the answer <laughs> is not even close um <laughs> well so is it more about uh just like having a bunch of these on your shelf like just because you love star trek and not necessarily about like you actually planning to read them is it just more about like oh these were a dollar and i like the idea of having a sort of mini star trek library yeah it's 100 percent. I, I will never read all these star trek books but the idea of them ending up in a clearance section and going to a dumpster after that depresses me so much as somebody's gotta preserve the star trek novels ben someone has to do the good work <laughs> and so it might as well be me I like it. Okay, awesome. Uh, what else have you been doing? Well, I'm trying to build a podcasting space. I'm, I'm on enough podcasts now that I want to have a dedicated space for it. And I'm actually recording this from my office because it turns out my podcasting space is a little echoey right now. I'm trying to turn one of my one of our walk-in closets into a space. Uh, I got, I'm playing a desk in there. And I'm ho- hoping to buy those, you know, sound 
uh, reflecting panels, like those foam panels for the walls. Uh, but right now it's a little echoey. And if anybody has any podcasting, you know, uh, space advice, like how to turn a closet into a podcast space effectively, you know, hit me up on Twitter at Jacob S. Hall. You know, my DMs are currently open. I will read them. Um, but yeah, right now the plan is just to um, buy, you know, panels to make the reduce the echo. Uh, and hopefully that will do it. You know, I'm a, little, I'm a little annoyed because I figured, you know, a carpeted closet uh, would actually be a really good space for this. So um, I was hoping to test drive it today, but as Ben told me, it's a little too echoey compared to literally have my laptop balanced on a pillow on my lap as opposed to like in a small dark room that I was hoping <laughs> would be very effective. Yeah, I think like, are there a bunch of clothes in that room right now? Like, uh, is it actually being used as a closet space? Right no, right now it's just an empty closet space. Okay, yeah. So I think the the thing that a lot of people learned over the pandemic was like, if you actually have clothes in there, that sort of doubles as the uh, soundproof type of thing. So like, maybe that'll work as a as a potential solution until you actually get those panels up. Um, so I don't know. Maybe try that. Give that a shot. We'll we'll test drive it again later on. Yeah, give it a shot. I, uh, I was hoping to keep this simple. It turns out this is a lot more complicated than I was going to be. I'm very annoyed by it, Ben. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into what you've been reading. You've been reading a ton of stuff, Jacob. Holy crap. It's been a little while since I've been on the show. Uh, so I'll also run down as fast as I can books that I've read and I can recommend. Uh, first one is uh, Oscar Wars by Michael Schulman, who is the uh, the New Yorker's like entertainment industry journalist. And Oscar Wars is a fascinating brick of a book. It is a long one, but it's really required reading. It is essentially, I think it's 10 chapters, and each chapter is a moment where the film industry radically changed, where something extremely important and major happened, and how it was intersected with the Academy Awards. Like, the first chapter is about the creation of the Academy Awards by the studios in an attempt to um, destroy unions before they could be built. And it tells that story. One of them is about the Blacklist uh, and the screenwriters who use pen names uh, and, you know, fought and struggled and suffered. Uh, and how they won Oscars using fake names. Uh, it uh, just, and each chapter tells a vital piece of Hollywood history through the lens of how the Academy Awards got involved and how they influenced it, how they affected each other. I found this riveting. I found it vital. And if you're like remotely interested in film history, or even the Oscars, or both, like I am, uh, this is like legit required reading. Like, like you should read this book, Ben. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Oscar Wars. Excellent. I'm, I'm very excited about that. All right. I also read our Ringmaster by Abraham Reisman. Uh, uh, Abraham Reisman previously wrote the uh, Stan Lee biography I talked about a few years ago that was sort of, that pissed off a lot of people because it was very honest and brutal about uh, Stan Lee's life and legacy. And Ringmaster is a biography of Vince McMahon, the uh, mastermind of the WWE and one of the worst humans on earth. They um, have one of the worst people to have ever lived. And the book makes the very strong and convincing argument that uh, the world that Vince McMahon created where truth doesn't exist and can be molded very effectively uh, has become the playbook for uh, American politics, uh, particularly on the, the Republican side. And Donald Trump, a lifelong wrestling fan and close friend of Vince McMahon, uh, has modeled his persona and outlook so closely on Vince McMahon's wrestling world that it, that uh, Vince McMahon has fundamentally damaged the American way of life. It's a really, really depressing, but really, I, I think, insightful read and one that um, like, I'm not. I'm not a wrestling fan. I, I I like reading smart people discuss it because I like, think it's extremely interesting. But I don't like watching it at all. Um, but if you are interested in what I just said, like if you were, in, if you are interested in how 
a real sleaze bag may have fundamentally shifted the way American politics operates uh, through his wrestling show. Uh, Ringmaster is pretty incredible. Yeah, man, I've been following this writer on Twitter for a long time, and I know you put a ton of work and research and all that into this one. So um, just like you did with the Stanley one as well. So uh, I, I, yeah, this not, I mean, I'm not a big wrestling guy either, Jacob. So I'm not, I don't know if I'm, I'm like, uh, if I'm equipped for like a, a depressing read about the state of the American Republic right now, like I just, I just caught up on succession. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but like that election episode, like, oh man, uh, I don't know if I can take uh, something like that at this, at this space, but if people are in, in a better, um, a better headspace than I am right now, then uh, it sounds like Ringmaster is, is worth the read. Yeah. I also read The Wager by David Grand. This is the author of A Killers of the Flower Moon and, uh, a lot of uh, Lost City of Z, uh, Devil and Sherlock Holmes, really incredible collection of uh, his investigative reported writing. And The Wager is his newest book. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's production company bought the rights to it before it even came out. So there could be a movie version in it, you know, at some point. And the basic gist of this book, it's a true story. How in the 1700s, a group of sailors washed up on the South American coast saying they were ship- shipwrecked um, from a British naval vessel. That there was a huge storm. They survived on Desert Island. Um, their leadership died, and they barely survived. Uh, and they were sort of welcomed as heroes. And then a few months later, another ship washes up shore on another area of South America where the ship's captain and the leadership is there. And they say, oh, no, they were mutineers. And there was crime and cannibalism and violence and murder. And the story they're telling is a, is a lie. And then the book flashes back to explore how this happened and the ensuing uh, court-martial and... A story that was in, in 1700s Britain, like the major scandal, like the tabloid scandal of what the hell happened on the wager, name the ship. And this is a fascinating book and clearly uh, put together with loads of research. I read it in two sittings. I couldn't put it down, Ben. This was one of the most exciting things I've read in a little while. Man, that sounds awesome. That's uh, that's going straight on my list. I also, uh, speaking of succession, I read Unscripted by James B. Stewart and Rachel Adams. This is the book that's being sold, like marketed as, if you like succession, here's the real thing. It's literally what it says in the back cover of the book. And uh, it, that's pretty accurate. Uh, James B. Stewart and Rachel Adam, Abrams are um, the New York, New York Times journalists. And the uh, origin story is that they were both working on stories about uh, Viacom CBS. Uh, one of them was working on the sort of financial stock market say the company when it was floundering that one was working on a story about Les Moonves the head of CBS who was uh, who was exposed to be a uh, serial sexual assaulter and harasser uh, as part of the Me Too movement and both of them realized that their stories kind of intersected they end up being two halves of the same story and they wrote this book about uh, uh, CBS sorry Viacom CBS and specifically the uh, Redstone family Sumner Redstone his wife Sherry and their circle of allies and enemies and a period, like a 10-year period, where uh, the Redstones started losing their grasp on Viacom CBS uh, and how they fought to retain it. Uh, and the, the people who were destroyed, uh, people who rose up, people who, you know, uh, stood in their way, people who, like, allied with them, the people who were paid off. It is just extremely juicy. It, it gets really, really gross because some of their Redstone uh, was... Uh, a man in his 90s who was spending lots of money on women because he was uh, incredibly lonely. And that ends up nearly destroying his entire family's legacy, which <laughs> ends up spiraling out in a thousand different directions and ends up destroying his company. Um, but it goes places. Like the, the, it really is uh, 
it, it starts with Sumner Redstone being horny and ends with Les Moonves resigning from CBS or being fired from CBS. To give you an idea <laughs> of of how this goes from it goes from place to place. But yeah, it's uh, if you like genuinely, if, if you like like the backroom politicking of bad people on succession, and are really curious to see how it like aligns or does not with real life, uh, unscripted uh, suggests that succession is more realistic than I think anybody ever gave it credit for. Yeah, yeah, man. I've heard a lot of interesting things about this one and, and some of the, like, just how close the entire company was to being brought down by some of the uh, the younger women that um, that Sumner Redstone had sort of encircled himself with is um, is really fascinating. And it's like, you know, the idea of like a what if scenario of what might have happened uh, if like a certain decision went like just a little bit, you know, uh, like a different way at a certain time, um, the ripple effects of that could have been just like uh, almost unimaginable in certain ways. So um, yeah, really interesting stuff. And then you also read American Prometheus. I've started American Prometheus. This is the book that's the basis for Oppenheimer. Um, the, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the man who uh, led the team that created the atomic bomb. Uh, Christopher Nolan, uh, while doing press for Oppenheimer, described him as the most important man of the 20th century. And uh, I think that's a very, very strong uh, and probably accurate thing to say. And this is a 700-page book, and it has tiny, tiny font. Uh, so I, I've, I'm a little bit before I can finish it. But um, I'm still very early on, but I'm extremely riveted by it so far. I haven't gotten to, like, the real Oppenheimer, like, building bombs in World War II part. I'm still in his childhood. And I'm already extremely interested by uh, how well authors Kai, B, uh, Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin are relaying his life and his, and his upbringing. Uh, I think that's always the toughest part of a biography, especially, like, a comprehensive one. The, the childhood years where like the authors clearly want to get that out there and establish so they have a comprehensive story, but it's almost always the part you kind of want to get through to get to the good stuff. So I think that American Prometheus uh, does a really fine job of actually making that part interesting and how it really like ties into the man he'll grow up to be uh, and how his father and mother like really influenced the kind of human being he would become, uh, which was a genius scientist who built the greatest weapon of mass destruction of all time, uh, but also was humanitarian who cared deeply about people and social causes and never recovered emotionally or mentally from the, from creating something so destructive. You know, I'm hoping that uh, Christopher Nolan's movie while surely being sold as, you know, a world war II thriller really captures Oppenheimer as being a guy who was smart enough to build a weapon, but human enough to feel terrible about it. And uh, I'm finding it really, a really exciting read so far. Yeah, that's fascinating. I don't think I really learned much about Oppenheimer at all in school, except for like the one line, you know, sort of takeaway kind of thing. Um, so I didn't even know that about like the sort of humanity that you're talking about that's being positioned in this book. So that's that's fascinating. And um, yeah, man, I, I can't wait for that movie. I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to finish that book before uh, the movie comes out. So I'll probably just hold off and, and maybe get around to reading that afterwards, uh, depending on p- pending the rest of your review, Jacob, once you finish it. But um, all right, I think also we have some. Have, also, watch the American Prometheus is such a great title. It's, it's it truly sums up Oppenheimer in every single possible way as a human being. Uh, but you just know that a studio said, "Well, if we call it American Prometheus, people won't get it, or they'll think it's like a sequel to Prometheus." Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, okay, so we have some uh, what we've been watching and what we've been playing coming up in just a second. But we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's get into what we've been watching. Uh, Jacob, like I mentioned, I caught up on Succession. I started the whole uh, series um, knowing that uh, the clock was ticking down and the the season four um, finale, the series finale was coming up pretty soon. And my wife and I managed to finish the whole thing. Uh, I think we finished in time to watch the election episode live, um, which was, I think, a couple episodes ago at this point. But uh, man, you know that, that thing, I think that it's been written about where like, uh, actors who pl- who star in horror movies, like sometimes if they'll have to do, you know, a full day, 12 to 16 hours of like hyperventilating and being like incredibly scared. Like the idea that like your body, the, the physiology of your body can't quite tell the difference between uh, something that's real and something that is is not real, that you're just acting. Like your, your body thinks that, um, you know, the, the, the way that you're chemically regulated and all of that, that the body sort of experiences those real um uh, emotions or, or, uh, processes as if they are like really happening to you. That's kind of how I felt about watching that, that election episode of succession. Like that sounds a little silly, but, and I know obviously that the whole thing is fake, but, uh, it was so, it hit so close to home that like my heart rate was elevated and I felt like awful after watching that episode. So, um, did you have a a reaction like that to that episode, Jacob? Yeah, it's incredibly intense and upsetting. It really is. It is all the bad feelings of the 2016 election grafted onto the like nerve-shredding tenseness of the 2020 election. Uh, so it, it really is the show fighting the worst of both elections and wrapping it, wrapping you up with characters. In succession, you spend so much you, you spend such so much time in proximity to monsters that you grow accustomed to them, and the, the horrible beauty of that episode is that it presents you in a situation where you have these very, very real feelings with a reminder of how bad both those election nights were. And you're spending it with people who, because you've been close to them, you've maybe convinced yourself that they're your friends. And that's what reminds you, they are not your friends. They're the source of your bad feelings. And yeah. it's one of the most intense evil magic tricks I've seen a show do in a while. Yeah, I can't wait to see what the finale holds uh, this coming Sunday, which also the Barry series finale is airing Sunday night. And I think Yellow Jackets as well. There's a, a finale on on Sunday night as well or, or sometime in the next few days for that. Um, so, man, yeah, a lot of uh, shows coming to an end or, or um, seasons coming to an end very soon. And we're going to have coverage of that uh, up at SlashFilm.com. So I encourage people to head over to SlashFilm and, and uh, click around. Um, you know, once the episode's over and, and read the takes that we're going to be pumping out. Yeah. But um, I will you know, say that you, most most people did not get screeners for the discussion finale. I'm assuming a handful of people whose names rhyme with Schmal and Schmeppenwall probably got screeners, but not us. <laughs> so um, <laughs> if you're looking for our usual succession coverage on Slash Film, you know, we're going to have a team get on Sunday night. I'm leading them. You know, we'll, we'll get stuff up as fast as we can. But, you know, definitely poke around the site Monday morning for sure for full coverage of succession and very finales. We're going to do what we can uh, on a holiday weekend without any help from the network. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So you mentioned, Jacob, the, the characters in Succession are not your friends. The characters in What We Do in the Shadows feel like my friends, though. I, I love that show. I've finally caught up with uh, that show as well. And um, man, just just a great 
show. I'm, I'm so glad that they've been renewed for, I think, seasons five and six already. Like season five, I'm pretty sure is coming up uh, in the next uh, month or two is going to premiere on. Why, I, I was just adding it to my editorial calendar at work, Ben. So, yeah, July. excellent. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm thrilled to be able to uh, you know be a part of the conversation around that show now because I remember you know sort of sitting on the sidelines and seeing so many people talk about how great it was and now I've uh, experienced it all myself and it's just uh, a fantastic show. It's it's it really has replaced you know the the Mike Schur, um, you know Brooklyn Nine Nine, Good Place, like Parks and Rec, like that. It, it fills that uh, shape hole in my <laughs> uh, TV viewing habits. So. Um, just wanted to give a quick shout out to that show and and everybody's doing great work there. And I'm also glad that the, uh, the Colin Robinson plot line from season four seems to have been, have been fully resolved by the end of that season. So I'm, I'm excited that they don't have to um, necessarily stick with that. You know, I, I, I didn't hate that subplot, but the idea of that being dragged out for multiple seasons, um, I could see where that could get tiring. So I'm glad that they, uh, they sort of nipped that in the bud. And um, I'm curious to see what the dynamic is now that, uh, that things are sort of back to normal in a, in a different way. And then there's the whole like Guillermo tease of what happens at the very, very end. So uh, I won't spoil that for people who, um, who haven't caught up yet, but uh, yeah. I, know, I do have excited. one question for you. Um, is the Jackie Daytona episode of this show, the best half hour of TV of the past five years? <laughs> Man, five years is a long time, Jacob. And like, you know, Barry, a lot of Barry episodes were, uh, were half hour. Um, so that, that, that's a tough call, but it's, it's up there in the comedy sphere for sure of like some of the best, <laughs> like so, so freaking good. Um, yeah, I, I was, I was very pleased that that one actually like lived up to, you know, I, I knew about that through cultural osmosis before I even started watching the show and it really didn't lose much of its punch, um, you know, watching it in, uh, you know, catching up with it later on. So, uh, great stuff there. And I highly recommend checking out that show on Hulu if you want to watch that. Um, and then really quick, I also watched a movie from 1951 called Roadblock, which is a, uh, a, a film noir starring Charles McGraw and Joan Dixon. Um, part of the reason that I watched this, Jacob, was it was it's 73 minutes long, which is like almost unheard of today. But I really enjoyed uh, diving into this this sort of um, skeezy world about. So the the uh, premise of the movie is that there's an, uh, a sort of straight and narrow insurance investigator who meets this gorgeous femme fatale who loves money and uh, status, and he this guy is like. Um, He's like the the guy in uh, Wolf of Wall Street who is just like the investigator, the uh, Kyle Chandler character who like DiCaprio just kind of laughs at him because he's never going to make real money in in this world. Uh, this guy is is sort of on the straight and narrow and falls for this woman and basically just like is completely corrupted by the idea of like, okay, this woman loves money. What can I do to um, to get enough money to make myself a viable candidate for her love life basically so uh and then ironically pretty early on in the movie I, I mean less than halfway through she decides you know what this whole like loving money thing is is really uh selfish and like uh surface level and like i'm not actually interested in that i actually just like this guy for who he is but at that point the uh the scales have been tipped and he's like so into uh the greed and the avarice and the um the uh, the chase and the thrill of trying to get this money that he can't um, 
you know, that, that's the tragedy of Roadblock is that he can't actually extricate himself from the situation that he's got himself in, even though he has the thing now that he wanted in the in the uh, beginning of the story. He's he's become too corrupted by uh, greed. So the way that it all plays out is pretty fascinating. And it ends with this really interesting uh, sort of car chase moment on the L.A. River that like, you know, there have been so many um, movies that have had sequences like that where the, the river is really low and the cars are driving up the concrete angles and all of that kind of stuff. You've seen it in Greece and a million other movies. And this was 1951. So this must've been like one of the early um, iterations of that sort of, um, I guess, kind of set piece, uh, visual set piece kind of thing. So that's Roadblock. I think I watched it on uh, Turner Classic Movies. Uh, if you would want to, if you want to check out something that's 73 minutes long and really sort of packs a punch in a good way, I'd recommend it. Uh, what have you been watching, Jacob? Uh, well, everybody else is concerned about the NBA and all the sports and all those big important finals, the showdowns of the you know the best athletes in the world. I've been watching my NBA finals, which is Jeopardy Masters. <laughs> um, ben, have you are have you are you at all familiar with Jeopardy Masters? Uh, I've you know years ago, my wife and I got into a, a thing where we watched Jeopardy like every day, but we've really fallen off um, around the time of. Uh, of the host passing it's sort of you know no more alex trebek what are we going to do and, and we just never really tapped back in after that well jeopardy masters is a prime time miniseries 10 episodes uh in addition you know the regular jeopardy is still airing you know in syndication and uh ken jennings uh hosts all of it and the idea is that it recruits the six best players in the past few years uh the people who are truly high-end jeopardy players who are just unstoppable, like the smartest, fastest, um, most creative players out there. And uh, has a tournament uh, to determine, you know, who's going to win, I think it's a million dollars in the end. And it's absolutely riveting to watch such high-end Jeopardy play. People who, like, uh, famously, you know, over the past 20 years, the way people play Jeopardy has really changed, starting with Ken Jennings being the first person, you know, he, uh, to really have a massive, massive streak. Uh, but then a few years ago, James Holzhauer, uh, broke broke the game by uh changing how you select categories by by hunting for daily doubles and going all in no matter what with with wagers and playing a high risk high reward jeopardy in a way that if you don't play that way now you know you're you are you're gonna lose and it's changed it's it's jeopardy's always been like a really, really fun educational game but now this new generation of players have made it into just riveting high stakes television where even the smallest mistake wrecks your whole game and, and uh, a huge bet, you know, will radically alter the, the shape of everything. And watching everybody bounce off each other and try to play that game, even with James Holzhauer in the mix, uh, is truly some of the most exciting Jeopardy I've ever seen. And also, uh, Ken Jennings is really settled in as a host. Like, he's gotten really, really good. And the fact that, you know, he knows what it's like to be you know, on that show and knows all the answers himself, essentially, uh, just gives the show a, a new dynamic. One that's different than Alex Trebek, one that I'm finding increasingly re rewarding to watch. Uh, he's definitely a peer to the players as opposed to, you know, a, a uh, professor, like, you know, mm -hmm. Alex kind of played, even though he wasn't literally that. Uh, and it's, it, it's, Jeopardy's back. And I feel like they're, they're, that, that rough patch where like, if we're trying to, where they're trying to find new hosts and there's behind the scenes drama. I feel like uh, Jeopardy Masters shows that the show is just firing on all cylinders again. It is as good as it's ever been. Uh, everybody's found their groove. And I think Jeopardy Masters, which is currently streamed on Hulu, if you don't, you don't have the cable, you can 
you can just pull up Hulu right now and, and binge and catch up, uh, is evidence that, you know, Jeopardy is bigger than Trebek. And Trebek always made the argument. He always insisted in his lifetime that the show was, that he was not the star of the show. The show was the star. The, the questions, the contestants, the format was the star. And as mm-hmm. much as I consider Trebek to be an international pop culture treasure, and I always am going to think fondly of him, he was right. The, the show can exist without Trebek. And I couldn't be happier to say that. Awesome. Yeah, so that's Jeopardy, uh, Jeopardy Masters on Hulu. What else have you been watching, Jacob? I watched Malum. Have you heard of Malum, Ben? Uh, no, I don't think so. This is a very strange film. It, it just uh, had a very limited category release earlier this year. And it is now available for, you know, digital rental or purchase through the usual suspects. I rented it for 10 bucks from uh, Apple because I was so curious. It's uh, directed uh, and co-written by Anthony uh, de Blasi, a horror filmmaker. And uh, in 2014, he made a movie called uh, uh, called Last Shift, which was about a, a rookie police officer on her first day uh, being assigned solo to a crumbling, uh, about to be decommissioned police station while the rest of the force had moved over to the new station. And while she is alone in this dark building where the power is inconsistent, she starts seeing and hearing things that could be tied to a demonic cult uh, that uh, previous officers had dealt with and, and leads to conspiracies and jump scares. And it was kind of low budget shoestring thing that I thought was very effective. And 10 years later, for reasons I have still not quite found out, I'm sure there's an interview out there that, where he explains this, uh, but he remade his own movie. Anthony Bossy remade Last Shift as Malum. It is the exact same setup, both a whole new cast, a bigger budget, a uh, bigger scope, and just it's a lot slicker, a lot more detailed. A lot of things that were left mysterious in the first movie are now made more concrete. It is essentially, even though it's not a major studio release, it feels like the studio remake of a small indie movie made by the same guy making the active choice to do so hmm. it's incredibly unusual that this it exists uh and as a movie it still has issues like there are there are real dunderheaded why the hell is a character doing that type moments uh that were also uh, uh, that were also there in last shift uh there, there are parts of the movie where like the main character should leave the station she should walk out she <laughs> needs to leave, leave and the movie does not give good excuses for her to actually stay and uh, beyond her needing to stay for the two advanced the plot but I will say that this movie is scary. It is really well shot. The scares are really effective. The effects are very practical. It's extremely gooey. There are some uh, deaths and kills in here that are really gnarly and really like how they do that impressive. And without going into details, I will say the creature design is exceptional. When the creatures show up, if you're a fan of practical guys in prosthetic costumes being monsters, Malum is worth the $10 rental. Okay, excellent. Um, you also caught up with Fast X. Fast X, Ben, uh, I think you and I are, are firmly on Team Fast X, thinking it, it is a, a really good Fast and Furious movie, right? Yeah, we did a big spoiler episode yesterday on the podcast, and we talked all about that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, you're definitely on, on my side of the camp here. Yeah, I, I don't want to go too long on because people just heard a whole episode on it. But yeah, I think Fast X is super fun. It definitely is, you know, very much a live action cartoon. Uh, I Dom is my least favorite Fast and Furious character. So the fact that uh, so every time the camera cut back to him, I'm like, oh, okay, let's get back to literally anybody else. Let's get back to Dante Reyes because Jason Momoa is having the best time. But um, I'm just really not on board with the people who think this one's a dud. Uh, I think that if if you've enjoyed uh, Fury, I think if you are really into the cartoonish heights of uh, seven and nine, 
and FastX delivers on that. And you know what? I am, I guess, because I really enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm glad to hear that we have another uh, another convert on the side, Jacob. So um, yeah. are, are you, I was just going to say, are you actively looking forward to the final movie in this um, in this saga? Or was this sort of like a fluke that you were happy to and like surprised to enjoy this one? No, no, I, I like more fast movies than I don't. Um, like, I think, I think that I don't like I don't, I don't like Hobbs and Shaw. I don't like The Fate of the Furious. I don't like Number Four, and that's really. I also, I'm not even a huge Number One, but the rest of them are ones I would happily watch, um, especially Fast Five, which is a great movie. Um, I'm looking forward to the finale. I, I do think it's time to end it. I do think that the timing feels right. I think that. I don't know how you can get any bigger than this. I don't know how you can stretch it on anymore. I think that, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited for the finale, but I'm glad it's the finale. I don't, yeah. uh, and I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, and then you also had a chance to watch Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Yeah, I just want to quickly say that um, this is one that I think has really divided the Slash film team. Uh, some people really like it, some people think really don't. But um, after being really disappointed by a lot of the previous phase of marvel thinking that you know they were at best pretty good and at worst they were thor left and thunder um i think the guardians 3 is it's a good movie i think it's funny and it's odd and i love those characters i don't think it's as good as volume 2 volume 2 is my favorite marvel movie um and it's honestly i know that's a people so people have it out for that one uh but it's yeah, quite a take uh but i i think that james gunn has tapped into these weird damaged messy characters in a way that I really, really embraced. And I, I like how uh, Guardians 3 kind of does manage to mostly exist on its own, other than having to recap the events of Avengers Endgame uh, to explain certain characters' presences. Uh, I like these characters. I like their dynamic. And I like that they have an ending. I like that uh, James Gunn was able to like send them off in, into the sunset. Yeah. yeah. Pro-Guardians 3. And I have a gut feeling that this will be a fluke because I'm pretty sure that we're still in the middle of a pretty dire Marvel stretch. I don't think they're going to pull out of it just yet beyond this movie. Yeah. I'm curious to see what happens there because the, the, the immediate future of Marvel studios um, does not seem to be aligned with my personal interests. Um, we'll see how much that actually like uh, bears out in, in terms of like whether the rest of the world agrees with that. But um but regardless, I'm sure we'll we'll talk a little bit at least about Secret Invasion when that premieres. I think next month. I'm not sure if we're going to do um, weekly like deep dives into that into that show. I'm not sure it'll be that type of show that really warrants that kind of discussion since there's so much of like the idea of like um, mask pulling and like oh anybody could be a scroll and all that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But uh, stay tuned for more discussion about that. Um, in the meantime, Jacob, let's get into the final topic here, which is what we've been playing. Uh, I had a chance to play an early version of Star Trek Resurgence, which is out now for uh, Xbox and PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4. Um, I think it's on the Epic Games Store for PCs, uh, I believe, as of today. And this is a third-person narrative adventure game set within the Star Trek universe. Um, about 20 people, or maybe a little bit more than 20 people, from the company Telltale Games have formed this company called Dramatic Labs. And this, I think, is their first big uh, push out into the, the video game space. Um, they made this game independently, and they like, got the, the license from Paramount. Um, but it's very much, if you've ever played a Telltale Games uh, project before, it's very much in that same vein, where like it's a lot of uh, cut screens, it's a lot of like, um, conversations between characters where um, 
you have the option to like press this button to say this, press this button to respond this way. And then like that uh, response is actually logged by the game and sort of helps, um, you know, the game keeps track of that and like character interactions and dynamics shift based on the responses that you give. Spock will remember that. What's that? Spock will remember that. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Yes, it's 100% that. Um, And I don't know, I, I think maybe these games just are not necessarily for me because they're so like the story for Star Trek resurgence is pretty good. It seems like a good Star Trek story. And I'm curious, Jacob, since you're like such a huge Star Trek fan, if you ever play this, if you agree that the the sort of um, basic narrative bones feel uh, in keeping with the, the general Star Trek tone. Um, But I, I thought that it was, and it it felt like an accurate sort of, um, you know, interesting. There, there were like a lot of subplots and stuff are, are very, they just feel authentic to me in a really um, genuine way. But the gameplay itself, the, the idea of like, um, you know, some character throws something at you and all you have to do is press R2 to catch it. Uh, there's, it's very simplistic. There's not much to it. Like a lot of times characters will like walk up to a panel and the game will prompt you to spin the left stick, you know, four times. And that's it. Like it, it just seems like, the type of game that is meant for, and this is not like in a disparaging way, but it seems like it's the type of game that's meant for people who like don't play video games and like are just trying to get into it or something like, you know, young people or like people who just don't have any familiarity with like more um, uh, controller complex games, if that makes any sense. So um, I don't know. I I basically just tapped out of it because I kind of got bored with it because the, the gameplay as it is, is so simplistic, but like I said, the story is good. So if you're like in the mood for a solid Star Trek tale, Star Trek resurgence is that, um, I just couldn't, uh, I don't know. I, I couldn't, um, I guess my attention span has been fractured so much that I can't, I can't just like sit through cut screens and like press one button every two minutes or something. You know, that's sort of feel like if I'm going to be spending my time playing video games, I want to be, uh, more of an active participant than what this game allows me to be. Yeah, I, I played a few of the Telltale games. I played the uh, Walking Dead one, the first one they did. You know, that sort of made like that was like it was like a huge blockbuster hit that made them into a big company, and ultimately led to Telltale's downfall because they started biting off more they can chew. We also, I also played their Game of Thrones game, and I have really mixed feelings on them because I think they're really well written, and I think that when you are put in situations where you're being asked to make really tough, dramatic story decisions. I find them pretty riveting, especially when the games really take into account your past actions in ways that they really start paying off dividends. But for me, it's always been like the uh, sequences where you're just between those uh, moments where you're wandering from place to place you know, very slowly, yeah. uh, not having much to do. Uh, those are scenes, those are sequences that, that, that kind of kill me. But I will say that Star Trek feels ideal for this format because. Any time to make an action Star Trek game, it doesn't feel right. I mean, Star Wars is action. Star Wars, you want lightsabers and blasters and, and ship-to-ship fights. But Star Trek, if, if violence breaks out in a Star Trek episode, something's gone wrong. It means that diplomacy has failed, talk has failed, you know, science has failed, reason has failed. And Star Trek is about avoiding violence as much as possible. So this format, where it's about discussion and debate and conversation, is actually very true to what... 98% of, a, of Star Trek storytelling uh, really is. Yeah. So um, I would much rather play this than play a game where I'm Captain Kirk shooting, you know, 100 Klingons uh, yeah. a, a, a mission. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this. I know it's been, it was delayed a lot. It had apparently had some real janky issues uh, like like a year ago when people played it for the first time, like in an early trial version. 
So I'm really interested in this, but did it feel complete to you? Did it feel like a game that was actually like, like held together? Um, I guess I can't fully judge it because I didn't make it all the way to the end of the game by a long shot. Um, so maybe like the conclusion would be so cathartic or so satisfying that like maybe it could potentially have turned me around on the idea. But like, I agree with you that like during those conversation scenes and like, you know, you have to make a lot of, um, of political decisions and like decisions that where like entire, you know, planet that the, the, um, fate of entire planets rest in you know, how you decide one way or the other. And all of that stuff does feel riveting and, and like vital and very much like the core Star Trek storytelling. But there is a lot of stuff where you have to like walk along the ship into another room and it's just like you can't run and it just kind of takes forever. And it's just like, yeah, it, it zaps all the energy out of, you know, whatever dynamism comes from those uh, those conversations that you're having. I just wish the game was like you could skip through that stuff and actually get to give me just the moments where I'm making decisions or like actually doing something interesting um, because there's just so much downtime in, in the middle that it, it kind of like sucked the life out of it for me. Did you ever play until dawn, Ben? No, I didn't. Until dawn. It's, it's a little old now. I think it's maybe close to 10 years old at this point, I feel like. Uh, but it's from a kind of who made it. I have someone screaming at their podcast right now, but they've since made this their, their whole thing. They make lots of games like it. Uh, where it's, it's it's a slasher film, but it's, it's a like horror story using uh, like Rami Malek is in it uh, along with the other recognizable actors. It's Rami Malek before he before he really started blowing up. To give you an idea of how long ago it was, but it's um, essentially it's a uh, you you play as all these young people uh, stranded at a you know cabin in the woods type scenario, and you it's a, it's a supernatural tinge slasher horror story uh, where like your decisions actively get characters killed. And I can like you, the, the cast of characters can rapidly change, you know, from playthrough to playthrough, depending on you know what decisions you make. If somebody gets dies in the first act, or they make it to the credits, and it's hmm. really, really exciting and a really good use of this format. And they have since um, made several other games that uh, have the same format. A game called The Quarry was a recent one that just came up maybe last year, maybe two years ago. Um, they have a whole thing called the uh, I think it's called the Dark Pictures Chronicles, something like that, or Dark Pictures. Yeah, the Dark Chronicles. Pictures Anthology. It looks like super massive games. Is the super name of the company. Games, thank you. And, uh, those ones are like like that, but 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 cheaper and smaller instead of being you know ten hour games, like they're like four hour games, and you know are intended to be played through multiple times. You can see the story from different POVs depending on the choices you make. Uh, super massive, I think, picked up the Telltale baton in a way that was really impressive, and I think. Do it does did even does even better job than Telltale did back in the day by t- by telling you know unique original horror stories as opposed to like you know leaning on existing you know franchise names like Telltale did in its in its waning days. Hmm. Yeah, if this all sounds really interesting to, to people listening and you want want to try one, try a version of this that I think like actively works and has a bit more of you know a bit more of a pulse to it beyond um you know a lot of the Telltale stuff Telltale stuff did. Yeah, then Supermassive's uh, horror choose your own adventure games are, are I, I'd say they're all worth checking out at least. Okay, and then uh, the last thing we're going to talk about is uh, you've been playing Resident Evil Four. Yes, this is the remake to hit PlayStation Five. Um, uh, Capcom's been remaking the Resident Evil games recently. They remade uh, Resident Evil Two and Three. Resident Evil Two remake is one of the best games I've ever played in my life. It took a, it took a game that was a classic in the '90s but had not held up at all, and from top to bottom, not just like you know remastered it but remade it uh, different. Inventory system, different map system, different control system, different cameras, different stories been updated and fleshed out. Resident Evil 2 Remake is phenomenal. And they applied the same thing to Resident Evil 3. Resident Evil 3 was a weaker game in general uh, back, in the, back in the early 2000s, late 90s. And the remake followed suit. It was very, very good, but it wasn't just as good as Resident Evil 2. 
Of course, Resident Evil 4 is considered to be one of the original one from uh, GameCube and PlayStation 2 from 2004, 2005-ish, is considered to be one of the great, most influential, you know, horror action games of all time. I mean, I played it back in the day. I've probably beaten it about 10 times over the years. I even bought it when it came to Switch a few years, Nintendo Switch a few years ago. You know, I, here I am playing this GameCube game from 2005 on my Nintendo Switch, you know, in 2020. <laughs> because that's how good the original Resident Evil 4 is. And Resident Evil 4, the new one, it is uh, like the Resident Evil 2 and 3 remakes, beautiful. It look, It's stunning. Capcom does an incredible job of making it, making it look modern, of uh, updating the story, updating the dialogue, updating, you know, a lot of the systems so they are, you know, more user-friendly in the modern age. But unlike Resident Evil 2 and 3, which I beat, you know, in feverish sessions, I beat Resident Evil 2 twice using both, both main characters in, in about 48 hours. I just couldn't stop playing it. I'm having, I'm having a harder time with Resident Evil 4. I think it's because they felt the need to not change it too much because it's a more modern game. Because so many games have sold from Resident Evil 4 already for like how modern action games feel. And they, they didn't need, feel the need to update it. So as beautiful as it is, as, as streamlined as it is, uh, I feel like, oh, this is still Resident Evil 4, the game I played 10 times before. And <laughs> I feel really, really bad because it is clearly an incredible thing. And if you've never played Resident Evil 4, this is the version to play because holy crap, it looks great. It plays great. It's scary. It's exciting. And it's goofy. It's everything you want Resident Evil to be. Uh, but I just can't get as into it because it just feels like the game I've played 10 times. And I, I feel like I want to beat it so I can get around to pick up a new Zelda game. I really want to play Legend <laughs> of Zelda uh, Tears of the Kingdom, but I can't justify buying another full price game. Uh, another game's going to take me you know, 100 hours to scratch the surface of when I haven't even gotten through the 16 hours of Resident Evil 4. So that's but you ha- it sounds like you have gotten through them, though, like years ago. So, like, you know, maybe yeah. you could just sell your copy of it and, like, you know, cut your losses and just move on. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But, like, I I feel like I owe it to Capcom. I owe it to them for the work they did on, <laughs> on, on making Resident Evil so good again. I mean, Resident Evil had such a rough patch. Resident Evil 5 and 6 are bad games. And they had some really bad games after that. They were sort of spinoffs. And with Resident Evil 7... Resident Evil 8, um, which are both phenomenal horror games. They really found their groove. And when they went back to remake these games, I feel like, oh, are they going back to the well because they want because they want to make some money, because they have because they're inspired? And the answer was that they were inspired. Resident Evil 7 and 8 clearly like relit a fire in the Resident Evil team's hearts. So their remakes, which bring the new the old games very much tonally and you know visually in line with the new ones. It's really exciting stuff. It's, it's literally never been a better time to be a Resident Evil fan. Like I know it's cliche, like never been a better time to you know to do this, but it literally has not been. Resident Evil's never been better than it has now, and I feel so stupidly guilty for not finishing the Resident Evil Four remake yet. <laughs> All right, Jacob. Well, best of luck. Uh, I know that uh, yeah, the, the new Zelda game is is just sort of. Uh, hovering just out of reach for you. So maybe that will be the all the inspiration you need to like really dig into Resident Evil and finish that to give yourself a, a reward of Zelda at the end of it. So um, all right, I think that's gonna do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about all these stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mail back topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.